Informant podcast should not be interpreted as legal advice and are intended for general information purposes only. Hey, this is Matt Scully and Colin Hilson. We are labor and employment attorneys with Burr Foreman. Today, we're doing the next series in our podcast on COVID-related employment issues. Our session today is going to focus on healthcare employers and issues they face with COVID. First question we have is for Colton. One question employers frequently ask is what steps others are taking to protect their employees from the virus, specifically whether an employer should or must ask daily screening questions or do temperature checks on employees. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, Matt, the, the first thing that I've been um, telling employers when they when they ask that question and specifically, you know, we're we're constantly being asked what are others doing and, and how can we stay in line with industry trends is that asking screening questions or taking employer employee temperatures is not actually mandatory, although clearly many are, are doing it. And it's important to remember that the, the temperature checks themselves are not, you know, an end-all be-all because there's so many asymptomatic folks out there. Many are just encouraging employees to self-screen themselves before they come in. And, and let's remember that a, a temperature or, or a fever is anything 100.4 or above. It's not just, you know, if you're got a little headache and you're at 99.5, then the employer or employee needs to panic about anything. And, you know, with respect to screening questions, it's important for employers to think out the questions they're actually going to ask and not just, you know, use what they what they found in a Google search or something like that. And I'll give you some examples. You hear employers ask employees, have you had any symptoms, including a headache or a or a, a call for other, you know, common COVID-related symptoms. And, you know, the, the answer to that question is, is often going to truthfully be yes. And employers can think about how they're going to respond to that. Just because an employee truthfully says, yeah, I've had a headache, doesn't mean they have COVID or there's any uh, reason for alarm. It might just be that they didn't sleep well the night before. So you, know, you need to think, of, think about how you're going to respond to yes answers to those questions and also some of the questions are really just outdated now i still see people asking things like have you traveled out of the country in the last two weeks and you know that was a relevant question maybe in march or april when the early outbreaks started but now you know the the virus is so widespread here in the united states that uh you know you could argue that maybe traveling to another country is you know the, the virus isn't as prevalent there as it is here in, in people's hometowns so uh, those are some things to think about. Thanks, Carlton. That was very helpful. Let me ask you one more question. If an employee does send an employee for testing, who pays for the test? We get that question a lot, and it's the answer is really twofold. Uh, one is who pays for the actual test, and two is who pays for, or, or does the employer have to pay for the time spent? Uh, by the employee to, to actually go get testing. And in both cases, it falls on the employer. Um, yes, the employer should pay for any mandatory testing that is done. Now, with that said, uh, recent legislation um, requires most healthcare plans to, to pay for the testing. But also, you know, the employer should, should pay the employee for uh, the time spent going to get a mandatory test. And on top of that, let's not forget about 
uh, mileage reimbursement that should be paid for the employee if it's a mandatory test. You know, moving right along, Matt, what what are your thoughts on what a healthcare provider should do if an employee has potential exposure to COVID? It's a good question, Carlton. The starting point is the CDC, and the CDC advises that healthcare provider use one of two methods when responding to a healthcare professional's confirmed case of COVID either formal contact tracing or universally applied symptom screening and source control strategy. The most common method we see is a formal contact tracing, and generally that's what the CDC recommends as practical. The first step in, in doing this analysis is looking at exposure. Exposure requires that a person be exposed to someone with COVID, which means that they're six feet or closer for 15 or more minutes. It also means that both parties are not wearing face masks. And there's a helpful chart on the CDC website which specifies when someone is properly wearing enough PPE such that they wouldn't be exposure even if they were within six feet for 15 minutes or more. But generally, if it's a non-aerosol generating procedure, if both parties are wearing face masks, you can take comfort in that there's not exposure. When you're looking at exposure, you also need to look back from two days before the obtained specimen that tested positive. So if an employee tested positive on Friday and the sample was taken on Wednesday, you would want to look back on Monday and Tuesday to see if that individual exposed anyone. And again, we just, dis just discussed what exposure means. That's six feet or closer within 15 minutes or more and not proper PPE. If an employee has been exposed, then that employee needs to be out for 14 days, even if there's no symptoms. Uh, if there's not exposure, and again, that's if they were wearing proper PPE or there hasn't been the time or the physical limitations, then there are no work restrictions. An employer should follow best practice, which includes face masks, monitoring, and active screening for symptoms. Second measure we talked about is universally applied symptoms. Of course, we're talking about healthcare providers, and, and because of that, the CDC was sensitive that some healthcare providers may have all their employees who are potentially exposed. And if all those employees were out for 14 days, the healthcare provider wouldn't be able to operate. So, the second method is if using the contract tracing method would impede your ability to, to continue your operations or provide care. If that's the case, you can use the universally applied symptom screening, which which looks a lot like the screening methods for employees who are not exposed. So that would mean wearing PPE face masks, it would mean constant monitoring for symptoms, and it would be active screening for symptoms when employees get to work. Okay, Matt, and when should an employee be returned to work with suspected or confirmed COVID-19? That answer depends on if the employee was symptomatic or not. If the employee has symptoms, the employer should wait at least three days since recovery, and that's defined as resolution of fever without the use of fever-reducing medications and improvement in respiratory symptoms, and at least 10 days have passed since the symptoms have first appeared. So generally, this will be a minimum of 13 days, potentially longer. If there are no symptoms, then the employee needs to stay out for 10 days from the positive COVID test. Um, the CDC no longer recommends a test-based strategy for returning employees to work. What that means is previously em employers could have employees take two tests within a certain time period. If, and if it was a certain type of test and both 
test came back negative, the employee could return to work. Now the CDC is just recommending if you're a person that you that you take these these time periods off and and not rely upon testing, which can be inaccurate, which can be delayed, and which can cause other issues. Call now. I want to shift gears to issues with employees who are asking for accommodations uh, due to their exposure to COVID or fear of getting COVID. What type of ADA reasonable accommodation issues may arise as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, and you know, we're talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act now, and, and I know you agree, Matt, that we feel like we're going to see a significant amount of employment-related ADA litigation in the coming months because, you know, in this whole uh, new world we're in, it's ADA is by and large, you know, by many employers, almost been forgotten um, because their the concentration has been so much on these new paid leave laws and other aspects of the COVID situation. But um, it's very important to remember that an employee with an underlying medical condition may be entitled to a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, even if he or she does not actually have COVID-19 or even if they have not been exposed to COVID-19 because their underlying medical condition might put them at, at greater risk. So, you know, if you're an employer or, uh, and, and you've got an employee who asked for some sort of change in their work environment or, you know, any type of accommodation, it's, you've got to remember that to trigger the interactive process, you know, that back and forth dialogue, uh, between the employer and the employee and you know accommodations are are things that everyone's been thinking about over the past couple of months it could be barriers including uh, plexiglass it could be moving the the individual to a different job location where they can be more socially distanced or it could be a change in their work hours or even allowing them to work from home which has obviously been a been a hot topic that, that numerous um businesses have done. But, you know, another thing that we've been asked a lot is whether, you know, human resources or, or management should go out and ask employees if they feel like they're at risk. And, you know, we've been telling people absolutely not because you're essentially asking them to disclose uh, a potential disability or, or medical condition. And, you know, you take away this the coronavirus situation, and, a, and everybody would know that you shouldn't be doing that. Um, uh, so, you know, let's keep in mind that if an employee approaches management or HR, then that triggers the interactive process, but we should not be proactively going out and asking employees whether they've got underlying medical conditions that they feel put them at, at risk. Can an employer force an employee to stay at home who wants to come to work? Yeah, I mean, the answer to that is, is, is clearly yes. No employer has to put an employee on the, on the work schedule and permit them to work. And um, with this current situation specifically, an employer absolutely can require an employee who's either had coronavirus, be symptom-free before returning to work, or, or show a negative test. I think the key in it is that whatever your policy is needs to be uniformly applied. I mean, if you require one employee to 
return with a negative test, you really need to be doing that for, for everyone for um, the discrimination type reasons and to cut those those claims and that exposure off. Matt, let, let's switch gears again now. Um, let me ask you about this. What is this healthcare provider exception under the F FCCRA? So the, um, the new, there's a new law, as most of you know, that provides certain paid leave for employees. And this generally applies to all employers under 500 employees. There's two parts to it. There's the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act, which generally provides 80 hours of paid sick leave for specific persons. If the person has COVID, if the person's caring for someone with COVID, if the person has to be at home due to uh, school closing due to COVID, and, and there's some other instances. And then there's the Emergency Family Medical Leave Expansion Act. This provides up to 12 weeks of paid and, and one week of unpaid protected leave to employees who are unable to work or telework due to a need to care for their child when a school or place of care has been closed or when the regular child care provider is unavailable due to a public health emergency with respect to COVID-19. The interesting part of both these laws is they provide a health care exception. So if you're an employer providing health care services, you can, or, or, or supporting entities that provide health care services, you can determine that your employees are exempt from the law and therefore not eligible to take advantage of the law. And this is a very important exception for health care providers. While it's not clear, our research seems to suggest that you can, you can pick and choose which law is well. So you're not obligated to comply with both the, have an employee be eligible for both these if you just want the employee to be eligible for one of them. Now, as I said earlier, this applies for healthcare providers. It also applies broadly into entities that support healthcare providers. And because of that, there's been a, a couple legal challenges and one of note in the Southern District of New York. And the, the federal court in the Southern District of New York actually struck down this healthcare exemption, said it was too broad as the Department of Labor interpreted it. And, and what that means is that if you're in New York, particularly Southern District of New York, then the DOL's definition of healthcare provider, which is very broad, is not applicable. Uh, what it also means is if you're a healthcare provider anywhere in the country, your use of this healthcare exemption is potentially susceptible to challenge. And it would be the, the rationale that the court in New York had that the definition is just too broad and it encompasses too many employees. And it's not limited to people who are actually providing healthcare services. It's, it encompasses everyone who has any tangential relationships to, to healthcare work, and, and that's too broad. So I say that because uh, right now, uh, you know, generally we're telling employers you, you, you continue on, but, but you do need to be aware of the risk. And what we're also advising is, is just think through when you're gonna apply this exemption. Uh, you can, you can apply it to certain positions or even to certain people. And you want to apply it, the Department of Labor recommends that you apply it as needed to, to help ensure that you can provide services that are needed, the healthcare services that are needed. So most employers, however, have been applying across the board to all their employees. And, and if you really want to get into the weeds and, and try and be more careful with this, you can, you can be more diligent and more specific in who you allow to take this exemption. Whereas previously you would allow all, all employees, it applies to all employees. In the future, it may just apply to, for example, certain nurses who are supporting medical procedures 
or something like that. Uh, that's just something to think through with you know internally and also with a you know council you trust. And Matt, last question I think we want to cover in this podcast is what role does the regular FMLA play? So as, as, as most of you know, the regular FMLA, to be a covered employer, you have to have 50 or more employees within a 75-mile radius. And for an individual to be eligible for FMLA, they have to have worked a certain number of hours, 1,250, and, and been employed with you for over 12 months. So assuming those two eligibility requirements are met, if the question has come up, if, if someone's sick or if someone needs to care for someone is sick, will, will the FMLA apply? And the answer is it depends. Generally speaking, the FMLA will not apply if someone's just afraid of getting sick. If they have a medical condition, they're worried that they could be exposed to COVID at work, generally the FMLA will not entitle them to, to pay time off or to, to any time off under the FMLA for that. What gets a little closer is if the employee is sick with COVID or if the employee needs to care for a family member who's sick with COVID. If the employee otherwise meets the eligibility requirements of FMLA, then yes, they would be entitled to FMLA. But keep in mind that just because someone is sick with COVID, it doesn't mean they're going to be eligible for FMLA, even if they miss work. FMLA has very specific requirements. To be eligible for FMLA, one component of this is you miss three or more days, you're incapacitated, but you have two more in-person visits with a healthcare provider. Or you have one in-person visit with a healthcare provider with a regimen of continuing treatment, such as prescription medication or physical therapy. A lot of the COVID cases we're seeing, the, the directions are simply just stay down, don't take any medicine, and you'll, and you'll get better. And in that case, they may not be eligible for FMLA, even though they can't work and they have COVID. Likewise, if they need to care for a family member who has COVID, uh, care means care. It means taking the person to the doctor. It means making sure they're medical or safety needs in that. Also, it can be psychological comfort, but it's a, it's, it's a not in, insignificant standard. So if someone simply has COVID and they're at home, it may not be necessary that the employee's at home to support them, particularly in this day and age, you can order things online like food. So it's going to be very fact-specific. So you know, just generally, if, if someone is sick with COVID or they have a family member who's sick with COVID, think about FMLA. You may even need to give them the paperwork to apply for FMLA. But don't assume that they're going to be eligible for FMLA. The employee is not sick and is simply seeking time off for a medical condition. It's probably not going to be an FMLA type situation. Thanks, Matt. I think we're going to wrap this podcast up here. Uh, we will. Our group will continue to roll out podcasts on coronavirus and other related topics in the coming weeks. Again, this has been Colton Hilson and Matt Scully. If you've got any questions about anything that we discussed, feel free to reach out to us. Thank you.